All right, glad you're here this morning. We are continuing on, pressing forward in this series. We're now to the sixth letter in the, seven, in the series of seven letters to the, to the seven churches. These are real churches facing real issues that are representative. They are representative of God's people in God's ages, all, all ages in, 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 since the ascension of Jesus, that facing these kind of issues throughout. Now we're turning to the church in Philadelphia Philadelphia is likely the youngest and, and even least influential city of all the, all the cities that get a, a, a letter addressed to them. The church resides in what's now the youngest city uh, of all of these seven. Least influential, though there was a major trade route that ran through the city, uh, it became known as the gateway to the east. And so there was a way in which Stuff would come out of like Smyrna, and from Smyrna, it was something like 100 miles along this major trade route, and then it would hit uh, Philadelphia and move on farther east. And so that's kind of the gateway. It became known as the gateway to the east. And it's probably best known for its vineyards and its wine production. And like every other city, it was filled with religious practice, just overflowing with all kinds of religious practice. It just wasn't good religion. It wasn't true Religion. They were worshiping false gods. They, they, they're, they're, the chief god in Philadelphia was the so the chief so-called god. Let me say it like that. He wasn't real. Was Dionysus or Bacchus, which is the god of wine and fruit. And uh, anyway, so Bacchus gets celebrated a lot at um, Mardi Gras. So when you go down, if you happen to ever be in. New Orleans at Mardi Gras, I wouldn't commend you to do that, but if you find yourself there, uh, you'll likely see a parade. It's one of the most popular parades to, um, under the name of Bacchus. I don't know that they're really actually believing anything about him or worshiping him in that way, but they use that name because he's known for wine, drunkenness, and stuff like that. So anyway, they worshiped him. But as part of the Roman Empire, there was a strong influence of the Roman emperor cult. So there was worship of the emperor. And we are going to see in the letter that there are Jews there uh, that actually are going to be giving trouble to the Christians. In the midst of all this false religion is a church. And as the city is likely one of the least influential that gets named in these letters, this church seems to be the least influential church. It's, a, it's probably the smallest a group of, of churches addressed, um, and, and seemingly they recognize and understand that about themselves. It's only the second church in the series of letters. It's, it's the second church, and the only other one was Smyrna that's not going to have any complaints against it uh, from Jesus. He's going to commend them. He's going to call them and commit to them, but, but he's not going to offer any complaints. We don't want to mistake and think, oh, well, these people were perfect. If we could just be perfect and, and sinless like Smyrna or Philadelphia, they just were repentant, right? Like that's, that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to over and over. That's the theme of this letter is repentance from lies, repentance from sin, repentance towards him in truth, patiently enduring. And that's, that's the theme of all these letters. And so they were already a repentant people. Uh, and, and, and so... Jesus doesn't name their, their sins that are tripping them up and causing them to stumble, but he does commend them, and we're going to see that. So, all right, so, so we need to listen to this letter because these churches are representative of all of God's people in all time, uh, and so there's still a lesson for us to hear today. So even though uh, we've been walking through these letters and there's possibly ways in which we could, we could see some of the complaints that Jesus offered against other churches, maybe we see them in our own life or in our church, we would say, oh, well, we're not Philadelphia because Jesus probably has some complaints against us. 
I don't, I'd love to hear what Jesus had to say about us, but let's just assume there's ways we could continue to grow. Even if Jesus has complaints against us, there's still things we can learn from this church in Philadelphia, uh, the, the things that they were enduring. So we need to listen because they were representative. They were the, 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 the things that Jesus has to say to them, he is going to finish this letter saying the same thing he says to all of these churches. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So any Christian who's able to hear, hear. Listen, pay attention to what I'm saying to this church. So that's what we need to approach this as. So let's read, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, the word says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we pray now that you would be with us. You gave these words to your son to say to your people. So with the authority and by his power, he spoke them, he made them known, he revealed them. So help us hear them, help us apply them convert our hearts, lead us to repentance where we believe lies, lead us to repentance so that we might stay true to your word and stay true to your name. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now each week we've been seeking to understand a summary statement of every one of these letters. I've been seeking to the best of my ability to to provide you a summary statement that gives us a lesson that when we're finished, we're gonna have seven basic points that each letter really emphasizes uh, that we can look at, and, and I hope that you've been doing this in your community groups, but I know the rhythm of every community group is different, that as we finish this, we will have a list of seven things that we can actually measure and say these are areas that we as a church can turn in repentance. These are areas in which we can celebrate that Jesus has done a work among us, and we can praise him for them as we hold fast to them. But this week, as we look to this church in Philadelphia, the way I would summarize the point of this letter, the thrust of this letter, I would say is this. By Jesus' power and under his authority, the church is preserved and responsible to hold fast in patient endurance as, a faith, as faithful witnesses while we wait for his promises to be fulfilled. That's a mouthful, but I want to read it one more time just so we get all these components and then we'll walk through them. By Jesus' power and under his authority, the church is preserved and responsible to hold fast in patient endurance as faithful witnesses <clears throat> while we wait for his promises to be fulfilled. Since mankind fell into sin, there has been a power deficit 
among mankind. There has been a power struggle among mankind. It has, it, you, you can trace it all the way back to Genesis 3 when God pronounces judgment on the man and woman and he says to the woman, your desires are going to be contrary to your husband. You're going to want something different than he wants. You're actually going to strive after it. You're actually going to pursue it. You're going to go for it. But he is going to rule over you. This, so you recognize this is not cooperation. This implies conflict, right? There's a power struggle because of our sin. That plays out even further into the family as we watch the next part of the story unfold in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills his brother in, in a jealous fit seeking the ability, seeking the power to be received and jealous because his brother got received and he didn't. His brother's sacrifice was commended and, and acceptable to God and his wasn't. He gets jealous. And so he exercises his power the way he knows how and he kills his brother, overpowering his brother. Over and over through the pages of history or through the pages of the Bible, we see this, this, this struggle for, for power. It's been on Every page of the scripture has been on every, uh, it, it's behind every function and move of people throughout history. Behind every war is a power struggle. Someone wanting land, wanting position, wanting what someone else has and taking it, seeking to take it from them. Or seeking to exercise power to defend what someone, what they have already. Behind the pursuit of wealth is the desire for power. Because most people, most people are not really in love with money. The love of money is usually the love of something money provides, power, right? People with money have power. They have influence. We want money because it's power. Behind the pursuit of knowledge is a desire for power because what is knowledge? Knowledge is power. And we, 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 but everything we do in our lives, there's really a, a power deficit and a power Struggle. This continued to the time of church, to the time of the church in Philadelphia, and it continues even today. It seems like to me, and I'm just a, I'm just a regular Job, just another guy on the street that pays attention and thinks about things. And seems to me, from my little point of view in the world, it seems to me that all of the big struggles, maybe even lots of the smaller struggles, are really a struggle for power because we feel a power deficit. The war, in, the war in Israel that's going on right now, it's a struggle for power. The, if you heard our newly elected Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, give his acceptance speech, I don't know how many of you listened to that, but I, I listened to it. I wanted to hear what was going on, and I listened to it, and he, he gives a good speech. He, I, I'm encouraged by what I hear. I think, man, this, 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 this might be a good thing. And then he calls out, not saying anything negative about it, but he calls out seven core principles of what conservatism is. You know what he lists as one of them? Peace through strength. We are going to achieve peace by power. So we get the biggest army, we get the most weapons, and what do we get to experience? Peace because everybody's scared to do anything to us. Because we want power and we want to show ourselves powerful. The struggle of feminism and masculinity. Think about it. Struggle for power finds its, finds its roots in Genesis chapter 3. There's the, there's the feminist appeal to power and position and wanting to be the ones making all the decisions. And I can do what every man can do. 
That's not true. You can't fertilize another woman. You can't get another woman pregnant. But there's things men can't do. We can't carry a baby. (laughs) I know there's lots of people in our world that want to say they can. But we know that's not true. We're flexing our power. We're, and, and then there's a masculine response. You see this masculine response that bows its chest and in, a, in, a, in a fear of losing power. They respond with, a, with a, 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 a masculinity that's rooted more in selfish exaltation than reflecting and representing the God who actually defines our identity of masculinity and femininity. Under every political struggle, like why do we so desperately want our candidate to win? Because we get power. Every, under every religious struggle, all the arguments that are going on, I, I listened to a good godly group of men talking about some of the stuff that was going on in the days of, uh, well, and it's still around, it's, it's just not quite as prominent in the headlines anymore, but in the days of, of talking about uh, the, the stuff going on in uh, race, racism conversations and, and, and Black Lives Matter and CRT, critical race theory stuff and all of these things that were going on. And, and, and one of the men was being singled out. Uh, one of the leaders was being singled out and they were trying to put him on the spot. And he just takes a stand. He says, you're not going to get me to say something I'm not willing to say. And another leader on the stage, it was a panel of Christian leaders. You would know them. Most of you would read from them. But one, and I respect him, still listen to him, still, still hear from him. He says, you know, I'm just afraid of who's going to be in power. Why is he afraid of who's going to be in power? Because power, even in the religious struggle, is a problem. In the whole race, racism conversation, I was, a, I was having a conversation with an influential black leader in our city, and he tells me, you know, we just want some of the power. We don't want the power to hold it over everybody's head. We just want some of the power that white people have. And I thought, what an honest answer. But what happens when we get power is we tend to lord it over one another in control to get I mean, why else do we want power? But even in the small things, you know that every act of disobedience against your parents, I think you're all children of somebody in this room, every act of disobedience is a power struggle. Children, you disobeying your parents is you seeking to live according to your own power and your own authority instead of theirs. Everything in our lives since the fall is connected to this power deficit that's resulted in a power struggle. Even in this little church in Philadelphia, Jesus highlights, woven together with all of their responsibilities, woven together with what he's going to commend about them and what they've done and and, and what he's going to call them to, Woven together in that are statements that even though they seem so powerless, he has power. It's his power and his authority to exercise that power that gives this church in Philadelphia so much reason, the the reasons to hold fast and do the things they're doing. 
It's important you recognize the, the necessity of both of those, the power and the authority, right? Because in these power struggles that we're facing all around us in our lives today and have been happening, lots of people are trying to exercise power without authority. Lots of people are trying to hold authority but have no power. Those two things, they, they, they are necessary to go together. Jesus says, I got them both, and we see it in some of his statements to this church. He says, hey, I know your works, but listen, I'm the one that set before you an open door. Who was able to set before them the open door? Jesus was. I'm the one with the power to do that. I'm the one with the keys to that door. I'm the one with the key, to, the, the, the key of David. I'm the one that's holding that key. I'm the one that opens it and no one shuts. I've got power and authority. No one has a right to do or open the door unless I allow him. No one has a right to have access to the door unless I allow it to him. No one is able to undermine my authority or override my authority because I hold all the power. I just think one of the hardest things for us in the world today is to believe that he really has all that power. Because we tend to believe the lie that we have a power deficit, that we have to struggle for power. So why do we listen for that powerful, forceful voice to go out there and make a way in the world when he's already exercised all the power and he holds it all? Because we're scared to death that we don't have enough power. Power and authority, they're a necessary pair when we assert power without authority, it's rebellion. That's children disobeying their parents. Or it's tyranny. It's the dictator that rules with, without having the authority to, to rule that way. Authority without power is meaningless. It's impotent because it, it'll never actually accomplish anything. You can say all of these things, but you'll never actually get anything done. Jesus shows the church in Philadelphia. He's teaching us through the church in Philadelphia that though they are powerless, he isn't. He has the authority to use his power, and he has the power to call them to hang on, hold fast, and patient endurance as faithful witnesses, and, and, and to wait for him to fulfill his promises that he's made, that he's going to accomplish by his authority and his power, they will be fulfilled. Hang on to that. Hold fast in that. That is the thrust of this letter. We're going to see it a little bit more clearly as we work through his commendations and his commitments and his call on this church. So what are they? Jesus' commendations for the church. It's, 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 it's so different here because we come to this place. He says, I know your works. And just like last week when we were looking at Sardis, we were expecting to hear their works. But he doesn't mention those first. I know your works. I know, who you, I know what you're doing. <laughs> but look at what I've done. And, and, and so this, this gives us a unique opportunity. It's a unique Opportunity to see God together weaving his power and authority into the works of what we're doing. And we, we get to begin to see this, this tension that we reside in. It's not, it's not a tension. They're not opposing forces. But it's actually a beautiful tapestry that one becomes dependent upon the other. Of God's sovereign and divine and almighty power exercised under his sovereign authority, being set right next to the works that we're responsible to perform. I know your works. But then he immediately refers to what he's done before he then turns around and talks about their works. 
I know your works. I know, I know what you've done. What is that? Well, we've got to skip down a little bit. We've got we to move past this interjectory phrase, I'm the one that set the door before you. I know your works. I know that you have little power. I know that you have little ability, but I know what works you've got. You have kept my word. They, they had ears to hear and they listened. They trusted him. They obeyed him. They, they, they submitted to his authority. The, the way they lived their lives was representative of what his word had called them to. Later he's going to commend them. You've, you've kept my word about patient endurance. They were an enduring people. We should not make the mistake to think that just because he's not calling out false teachers that are plaguing them or calling out the struggles that they faced in that culture, we should not make the mistake that assumes that they didn't have any troubles to bear up under. Because he points out their patient endurance, which happens to highlight and imply and make clear they're enduring something with a long-suffering spirit. A few weeks ago, we referred to this as long obedience in the same direction. They are obeying without, without a, a place of ease. They are obeying and doing the right thing. They're keeping his words, trusting and obeying. And that's reflected in the way that they're living. Further, he goes on and tells them, you've kept my name. You've, you've not denied my name. They, they, have, they have not, when, when faced with opposition, Jesus isn't the Messiah. To say Jesus is Lord or that, that he is king is an offense, is an affront to the Roman emperor cult. They've not denied that Jesus is Lord. They've not pretended that Caesar is more. They've, they've not denied that in any way. They, even at great cost to themselves, they're willing to honor him as Lord, proclaim it to, to others so that others hear it. They are the faithful witnesses that he's calling all of his people in these letters to be. They are reflective of him. They are representative of him. He's the faithful witness, right? From chapter one, he's the faithful witness. And, and this is what he's called us to over and over and over in these letters, to be a people who reflect and represent him in the world we live more than we reflect and represent the culture around us. They have not denied his name. They have kept his word. They have kept his name. And Jesus commends them for it. What does he complain against them for? I've mentioned it already. There are none. He doesn't have anything correct in their lives. Again, we don't want to make the mistake that, that oh, well, that means they're perfect, that that means that they've arrived at sinlessness. That's, that's foolishness. That's naivety, right? Like, that's not, that's not true. They weren't being seduced by false teachers and running in after lies. They were living repentantly. And here's the thing. Repentance isn't perfection, Right? Repentance is the beginning, it's the turning, it's the beginning to move in a different direction. I was headed this way, I was committed to these lies, I, I trusted these lies, I was committed to this false way of life. Jesus comes and shows me the truth, his spirit opens my eyes to the truth and I begin to look. And I see the lies and I turn from the lies and I begin to believe the truth and that begins to find its way out in the way I live. But repentance is... is is, is turning towards us, the beginning to lean in towards God. It's the beginning to walk towards God. It's not the arrival. It's the way of life that it, it, we just celebrated um, 
October 31st. What's the Halloween, right? So Halloween is just behind us. Well, that's also uh, Reformation Day, October 31st. And that's the day of the 95 Thesis that Luther nails the 95 Thesis on the wall. And at the, at the heart of his theses, the, at the heart of his, his writing is the idea that all of Christian life is repentance. We don't repent once and stop. Okay, I'm rep- I've repented and now I'm just going. Repentance is, is the Christian life. It is, that's a lie, I'm turning to the truth. That's a lie, I'm turning to the truth. And so they're surrounded by false teachers. They're surrounded by false worship. They're, they're being pressured and, and tempted to live in the world. But yet they're unwilling to. They continue in repentance. And so that's a beautiful thing. And though they're not perfect, and though they're, they're still people who are wrestling with sin and fighting against temptation and having to take their lives and beat their bodies into submission, as Paul says, and, and take hold of their desires, though they're those people, their lives are marked by repentance. So he doesn't complain. He doesn't have anything to say negative about them. But then the focal point of this letter comes to the place where Jesus begins to show, uh, unique to all the other letters, different and distinct from all the other letters, he begins to show what he's done for the church, his commitments to his people. And so we're actually hitting this out of order because normally we're saving the commitments for the end because that's the way they fall in the letters. But, but here, his, his commendation of the church and his commitment to the church, his promises to the church, they... they They go hand in hand. They're woven together. It's this beautiful tapestry of what we see being tied together in the Christian life and the Christian walk and what's commendable to Christ in what is happening in the lives of these people. His commitments to the church, what he's promised, he has already accomplished for them. And in the end, we will come back to his commitments and we'll see what he has promised to still yet accomplish for them. But these are things he's already promised. I'm already doing I've already made possible for you. By his power, by his authority, he is accomplishing these things. He is preserving his people. He is preserving us in his holiness. Look at what he says here. So he says, I am the holy and true one. I am the holy one and the true one. I am the one that's holy. And I am the one that's true. And there's something powerful here. There's something important that you see in this letter through this. There's the only other place that this is referenced in the scripture where those two titles get tied together immediately. Now, there's, there's all kind of places where God is the holy one in the scripture. There's all kind of places where God is the true one in the scripture. But there's only one other place in the scripture that, that I was able to find that shows holy and true put together this way. And that's being Revelation chapter 6. And it's in reference to God. So Jesus, although he's not just flat out saying, I'm God is making a claim to divinity. I am the holy one and the true one who's later going to be revealed in the book of Revelation to be God. I am the holy one, right? So, so he's got this sovereign authority. He's got this almighty power, this divine thing. But what does that mean for his people? Why does it matter that he introduces them to himself in this way? Because he is holy. As they become his, they are made holy. Their holiness is not preserved and, and accomplished by them. But first, it's by him. There's all kind of conversation about this door that he, that he sets before them. Well, what is this door? Well, some people think it's opportunity to meet missionaries in the world. Some people think it's access to the kingdom of God. And honestly, I think that, that what it is is he's saying, I've, I've given you entrance into my kingdom, into my holiness, 
into my truth, into my way of life. I've given this to you. I am preserving you in holiness. My holiness. Distinction. Separate. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. You are strangers and aliens. You're sojourners passing through. You're citizens of heaven. That we're going to see that fold out, fall out a little further as he speaks about the name of the new city being written on us. You belong to me. There's no greater truth than this. We are made his. Every other truth, every other blessing comes out of this truth. He made us holy and he maintains our holiness. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take our holiness from us because he's the one that gave it to us and he's the one that keeps it on us. Your life in this world, as hard as it might be and as surrounded by sinfulness as it might be, is no less holy because you are his. He preserves us in his holiness. He preserves us in his truth. The whole of the letter of Revelation is Jesus pulling back the veil. It's his revealing of truth. It's his showing of, of what's true and what's a lie. He's revealing the counterfeits that the enemy has, has set out as, as powerful and as, as prominent as, as, as a source of hope. He shows the counterfeit nature of them. He uncovers the lies and he says what's true. A good example of this in, in these letters is the church to Smyrna. He says, you, you, you are poor, yet you are rich. Like their perception of themselves is poor. You might even go so far as to say that they think they're powerless because they're poor. But he says, yet you are rich. As the letter continues to unfold and he, and he shows the breaking of the seals, who's behind that? Is the enemy ever winning? Is the enemy ever ahead? Has the enemy ever got one over on God in the book of Revelation? Absolutely not. The seals are his. The bowls are his. The trumpets are his. The new kingdom comes down. When he says it comes down, the enemy will do what God says. That's the truth. There's nothing that changes that. That's power, right? Like, I mean, he's the one that's got power. So let's quit pretending. Let's live in this truth. He's preserving us in this truth. He's the one that's saying what's true. He puts the door there. He's the one that opens it. He's the one that closes it. You know what that means? He's the one that gives opportunity and he's the one that takes it away. He's the one that takes opportunities away when necessary that no one else can provide. You get, I mean, he shows it there, right? Like, I am the one that put the door there. I'm the one who opens and no one can shut. I'm the one who shuts and no one can open. You know what? We run after all kind of things in this world, <laughs> right? You know why things don't happen the way we want them to happen? Because he opens and shuts what he wants to open and shut. Why do we have so many struggles in this world? Because God has shut the, the, the pathway to peace at this point. Why, why is my life so hard today? Because God allowed it for a reason. Why do I feel like I have so little power? Because I don't believe the one, that he's the one who opens and shuts and shuts and opens. I don't believe he's got the power. He is preserving us in his truth. He is preserving us in his holiness. He is preserving us as his people. And, and, and you just think about this. this. This is one of those truths that he's making known. 
And he makes it pretty clear here. Hey, those Jews that are giving you trouble, that, that, that have caused you problem, those Jews that say that they're my people, they're really the synagogue of Satan. And he makes this reference to Isaiah chapter 60. There's actually all kind of references to Isaiah, the holy one, the true one, the key of David, Isaiah, Isaiah 22 is there. Um, but but in, in this reference to the, the Jews coming and bowing down before this church, being shown to, the church being shown to be his people, there's a, rever- a reference to, an allusion to Isaiah 60, where, where Jesus is the one, who, or the true Israel, the, the people who have caused them trouble and brought them harm is going to come and bow down before them. I'm going to make them bow down before you. And he says that to the church about Jewish people, who Jewish people, because of their lineage and their lifestyle and their, and their connection to the law and the circumcision and the patriarchs and all of these things, they'd say, we're the people. One day you Gentiles are going to come down, bow down before us. One day you'll learn. And Jesus flips that on their head, and he says, no. They are going to come and bow before you. This synagogue of Satan, these people who are bound and enslaved to the lies of the enemy, who believe they are something but rejected the Messiah, who have rejected me as their king, they are going to come and bow before you because in me, in Christ, you are the true Israel. You are the people that everyone else is going to bow to. Man. He is going to preserve us as his people. We are his prized possession. And he goes on and he shows them what that's going to look like. I'm I'm going to cause them to come and bow down before you. And what are they going to learn? I have loved you. He is preserving us in his holiness, in his truth, as his people, and in his love. His perfect love that casts out fear. His love that's active, sacrificial, beneficial, and effective. Life-changing love. He preserves us in this love. They will know that I have loved you because you have kept my word. Again, we're going to see this. Uh, this, this balance between their responsibility and his sovereign power and authority working things out. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. He is going to preserve us in troubled times. Now there's a, a group of people, uh, there's a, a, a school of thought, let me say that differently, it almost sounds like I'm trying to be derogatory. A school of thought, the dispensational, pre-tribulational, rapture, school of thought that reads this verse and they, that, that they would be point at this verse as one of the evidences that, that before the tribulation comes, God's going to remove his church from the world. So there's going to be a rapture and he's going to remove them from the world. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's a right, a right interpretation of this verse because the one other place in scripture where this phrase is used in the original language where it's used and it's stated verbatim is in Jesus' prayer in John 17 when he's praying to the Father and says, John 17, 15, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that you keep them, that you preserve them, that you hold them without removing them, that you hold them from the, 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 the power or the rule or the or the apostasy that comes at the hands of the evil one. 
And further, I think that biblically speaking, the model of God's work in the scripture is not a removal from the world, but a preservation in the midst of it. So let's take Israel, the nation, as, as God's people all the way back to uh, Egypt. And when they're in Egypt and the plagues come, he doesn't remove them. He keeps them. He preserves them in the face of the, those plagues. Now, there's some that they didn't experience that the Egyptians did. But he's preserving his people, not by removing them, but by keeping them in the midst of it, providing for them, protecting them, holding them, watching over them, ensuring that they are able to endure. He's keeping them. And so, so I, I think that, that what Jesus is saying here is not that they're going to be removed and then this trial is going to come and we're not going to experience that tribulation. I think he's saying that he's going to preserve us no matter how bad it gets. That his people from all ages and all times will be preserved, will be kept. We will be protected in the midst of the hardest tribulation that comes. It will not overcome us. It will not cause us to fall away. It will, he will, by his own preservation, enable us to patiently endure. This seems to be the biblical model. It seems to be the right interpretation of the phrase, that he preserves us in troubled times. And when the time is right, then he takes us out. It was after the plagues that he finally brought Egypt out of, or Israel out of Egypt, sorry, say it the right way. It's after the plagues, it's after they had actually endured a lot of hardship because they were being faithful to his name, right? Like he calls, he, he, he sends Moses in, and Moses goes in, and let my people go. I think that's a movie reference more than it is a scripture, but you get what I'm saying. So, so he goes in, let my people go, and what do they, what do, they do? More work. More bricks. We want to double that quota. Get, come on. Get the job done. He makes it harder on them. Plagues come. You know the only reason the firstborn of the Israelites didn't get killed? Because they painted blood over the doorposts and on the mantles. Like they, they eat the first Passover supper. Had they not done that, what would have happened? The firstborn of their kids would have been killed. He preserved them in troubled times. He's preserving this church in troubled times. He's preserving us in troubled times. Until he returns when he's ready to come, when he comes back and he says, I'm coming soon. He's gonna preserve us until he returns. The end of your patient endurance is at hand. It is coming. He's preserving us to that day. He will ensure we make it. And the scripture says, I am coming soon. Now immediately, that makes us wanna say, ooh, boy, Where's the charts? Where's the graphs? Where's the day? I want to know. I'm ready. I, I just need to know the day. And what's interesting is all the faithful people of the Lord since that day, since that telling, have been anticipating the day is near. Every generation has thought they're the one. He counts time different than we do. But here's the promise. He is preserving you until the day he returns. You don't need to know what day he's coming. You know why? Because you'll be ready when he shows up. You don't need to know the hour. He can come like a thief in the night. If, if you will just patiently endure, if you will just do the things, he will preserve you to that day. That balance of his sovereign work and his authoritative call on your life. We're going to get to that in just a second. 
And he preserves us by his power and his authority. It's his work. It's his ability. It's his power that places that door. He's the one that opens. He's the one that shuts. He's the one that gets things done. He's the one that can say when and, and how. He's the one who does this work. We don't need to be powerful. We don't need to hold all the authority because he does. And he preserves us in them. And that leads us then to this call he has on the church. And we've been watching. We've been, all of these verses, they're intertwined. It's almost impossible to separate them. And I'm separating them for the purpose of us just seeing them. But they're laid next to each other over and over. Hold fast. Persevere. Patiently endure. This is his call on his people. We've heard it in every Letter, Maybe not explicitly called out, but implicitly in every letter. This is the expectation God has on his people. But again, as we come to this call, it, it, it gives us the opportunity just to address the reality that in the midst of every action, every, every uh, call on God, he's the one that actually empowers us to fulfill those callings. There's this, there's this beautiful balance and beautiful way in which the, the sovereignty of God sets right next to the responsibility of man. In fact, God's sovereignty is the thing that produces our responsibility. Because of what Jesus has done, because he placed the door there, because he's the one that opens and shuts, because he's the one that gives opportunity, because he's the one that gives access, he says, hold fast. Because I am the one with power and authority, hold fast. Because I've given this to you, you are responsible to put it to practice. Because you're preserved in my holiness, live as a holy people. Because you've been preserved, you're being preserved in my truth, live according to the truth. Because I have done these things for you, you do these things that I've made you by my sovereign power, sovereign authority responsible to do. It isn't that a person that, that that if a person doesn't hold fast, they've lost their chance. This is going to hit hard, I think, in some of you. If a person doesn't hold fast, it's not that they've lost their chance or they've thrown away their opportunity. If a person doesn't endure to the end, they're not going to be saved because they never were saved. When Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, his emphasis is not on their endurance. Although it sounds like it immediately, his emphasis is on the spiritual work that causes them to be able to endure, that produces endurance, that's then revealed in their endurance. You only endure to the end. You only patiently endure if God is preserving you for that patient endurance. Those who don't, can't. They are the powerless ones. They're the ones that are incapable. They're the ones that don't have an ability. It's a lie that we believe. I'm going to patiently endure and I'm going to make Jesus save me. That is a work you'll never get done. I am going to hold on and I'm going to exercise power and I'm going to do these things. That is a work you'll never Get done. But for every one of you that he is preserving, you will patiently endure. You need to be warned. You need to be challenged. You need to be encouraged. You need to hear these things. Not because you won't, but because these are the things that he uses us to keep us on the path. 
It's like driving down the road and seeing the street sign that says, hey, there's a cliff on your left side. We just don't drive over the cliff then, right? We need that street sign there for us to keep us from driving off the cliff. That's what he's doing. He's calling us to this. He's showing us what he's doing that makes us responsible but also makes us able. We are only powerful because he is powerful. So hold fast. We are only able because he is able. We only have this authority because he has that authority. We, the only way we'll ever stand in his presence and say, I deserve entrance into this kingdom is because he's given us access to the kingdom. Because he put the door there and he opened it to us and no one could shut it. Those who are saved by Jesus, who belong to him, or they, who are being preserved by him, are, are, are going to keep his name. They are going to keep his word because they are kept by him. So hold fast. Persevere. Patiently endure. Not because we have the power to do it on our own, but because he does. And we trust him and his power to keep us. If, if, and you just think about where this, where this falls out. If, he is, if he's not the one asking, if he's not the one commanding, if he's not the one giving us power to do it, where else does that power come from? We've got to figure it out on our own. So instead of praying for all the winsomeness and all the courage and all the boldness, all those things are good and necessary, right? There's the right place, right time for those kind of things. Don't pray for those things without praying for his power. It's actually ironic I, I, again, we don't plan these things, but it's ironic that we start this service today and we sing these songs about God's powerful work and then Cooper stands up here and says, if the house is going to be built, it's going to be by God. You know what he doesn't ask us to do? He doesn't demand fruitfulness. He doesn't say, be fruitful. Hold fast. He doesn't say, get results. He says, hold fast. He doesn't say, you win and you succeed. He says, hold fast. Where does success come from? The fruit he works through us as we hold fast. Where does fruitfulness come from? From his preserving us as we hold fast, he produces fruit. So keep on keeping his word. Keep on keeping his name. (laughs) Professing and proclaiming it. And here's another thing. We, we have so many things in my head, and I, I need to move on because it get convoluted. But, but the reality is we do not need anyone else's permission to be God's people. He stood before his disciples. One of the last things he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, they've already worshipped him. Like, they show up, and they are, they are worshipping him. They recognize he's the risen Lord. He is sovereign. He is worthy of our worship. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples. <laughs> Baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I am with you. You know why it's so important to remember he is with you? Whose power are you going to lean into as you try to make disciples? as you try to obey his word, as you baptize people in his name. Whose authority are you, are you doing that under? And Christian brother, sister, we are so afraid of losing position and power in this place and time. You don't need position and power from anyone else. You've been given to it by your Savior, Jesus Christ. So go be his people. Hold 
fast and leave the fruit to him. Hold fast, he calls us to. Hold fast, persevere, patiently endure, and he commits this. He commits this, th- these things alongside everything he's already committed to us. He commits these things. I'm going to fulfill the promises that he's preserved us for. He is going to fulfill the promises he preserved us for. It's beautiful what he says to them. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the, of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. You know what he's going to do? He's going to mark us for his father. Last week we saw that he's going to confess his people to his father. He's going to mark us so that his father sees us and, and sees him in us. When he looks at you, who does he see? Your sinful flesh or your righteous savior? Who, who, who does he see? A, a, a stranger, an alien to heaven or a citizen of heaven? A citizen of his kingdom or a citizen of the world? His name is on you. His citizenship is on you. I'm going to make you a pillar in my, in my father's house, in his temple. <laughs> and they will never go out. Eternal presence. He is our God and we are his people and we will be with him forever and ever. These are the promises of scripture. He's been making them all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We begin to hear that promise, but he makes them clearly, begins to make them clearly in the gospels as Jesus walks the face of the earth and promises eternal life to any who believe in his name. I'm going to give them, I'm I'm going to give you this, this identity that is everlasting. You are going to be a pillar in his temple. You'll never be made to go out. Who opened that door to you? And who can shut it? No one. Who can keep him from fulfilling his promises to you? No one. Who has permission to override his authority? No one. Who has the ability to undermine it? No one. These things will come to pass. He will preserve you until these promises are fulfilled because it's his power and his authority that keeps us. And there's a reality, a flip side to this. It's implied here. It's been stated more clearly in letters to churches like Sardis, and we'll see it in Laodicea. He is the only one with the power and the authority to do this thing. So if you're sitting in this room today and you think you've done it by religion or going to do it by religion or you've never really trusted him or never followed after him, then don't make the mistake of claiming these promises because you do not have the power or the authority. Turn to him. Trust in him. Follow him. He has the power and the authority not only to give them and bestow them to you to place this door of entrance into his kingdom and access to his father. He has the power to give that to you and he has the power to preserve you until the day he returns. Trust in him and him alone. Let's pray.